Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing today? I am very well. And how are you, Grant? I'm not too bad. Thank you. I feel very excited today. You know why? Oh, do tell. This is the first guest that we have had who is not actually on terra firma in Australia. Oh, I mean, really? normally he's here, but... As COVID is lifting and business is booming, uh, our guest today is overseas doing exciting things, and Fantastic. we're going to talk to him all about it. Well, do do start. Let's let's learn more. <laughs> well, everyone, today we are talking to the CEO of Beak and Johnston, Ray Hanley. Beak and Johnston is one of Australia's largest chilled ready meal manufacturers, and. It just recently invested around $90 million in a new kitchen facility in Western Sydney. So you can imagine that that's a lot of ready meals if it's already one of the largest producers. Uh, So we're catching up with Ray, who's currently overseas. Hi, Ray. Good morning, Kim, or good evening. Yes. I think it's very early in your day, isn't it? Yeah, it's just after 6 a.m., but it's good. You know, bright and chirpy. so this is a fantastic, um, a fantastic announcement last week, and a real, I guess, a real signal about the strength of the ready meal, the ready meal sector. Yes, Kim, it's, it's something we're massively excited about. It's something that's been in the making for a number of years. So to get to the stage where we um, put an agreement in with Landlease to do build and design, and finally do the sod turning last week was a key milestone in the development of the new business. Um, so, yeah, we're massively excited about it as well. So tell us a bit about Beacon Johnston in its current, you know, in its current sort of form. You're producing uh, your own range of products as well as a number of other brand names as well, aren't you? Yes, Kim. We're not just a ready meals uh, business. We're more of a meal solution business, so meeting the needs of consumers um, across a convenient meal solution um, opportunity. Uh, the particular business that we're talking about is uh, City Kitchen in Ireland Park, and that does produce a wide range of, of ready convenient meals which are ready to heat. Um, we opened that facility in 2015, and it's uh, close to capacity. So as the business evolves and the total category evolves and emerges, we want to ensure we're in a position to meet those consumer needs for the future. Uh, and when you say close to capacity, what sort of scale are we talking about here? I think um, either in revenue or units, whichever you like, it'd be that particular business would be doing about 150 million annual sales. Um, and in units, that can be anything from 700 to 800,000 meals a week. Right. <laughs> and um, and how long have you how long have you been with the with the company? Look, I came out in 2014, Kim, um, and that's a real interesting point for me because Australia was never really a destination location. Of Irish descent, I was pretty resistant to coming, if I'm asked, but the real attraction was coming and seeing this category and the opportunity that it opened. Now, personally, I kind of grew up in this category in, in the UK, having studied food science and worked in the ready meal industry for some 16 years so I had a wealth of experience and think well can't rewrite history but going to Australia I can actually write history yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. And and so how what, what have you seen? What have you seen in that time? Oh, look, I think it's my main passion is around understanding the consumer. But I think when we opened the new facility in 2015, consumer trust was a big barrier to entry. So we really had to work hard at getting a firstly understanding the consumer because the consumer was different to that European market. The second one was about gaining trust by ensuring that the consumers knew the products that they were buying. It not only met their need, but they had trust with uh, within us as manufacturers and retailers to supply a good quality product, preservative-free and so forth. So, so that was the biggest barrier to get across. Um, the second biggest one was, again, linked to consumer. Consumers shop their eyes, as we all know, but manufacturing and presenting a product that uh, consumers wanted to pick up and actually wanted to try it out. And, and that was the second big challenge. So in how the product was presented at retail, we went through a massive amount of learnings jointly with our, our major customers uh, on that journey as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that I guess has this been also a process of the technology catching up so that there are now processes that you you can use on the line that don't inhibit or or damage the presentation as much as what they perhaps used to do when they were just, you know, making sure that they were reaching all the health and food safety standards that they had to. Yeah, look, technology has played a key role, uh, Kim, but the truth of it is consumers don't really think about technology. They want to think about the product that's stay on the shelf, the product that they buy, and what is the eating experience. Where technology has really helped us is to remove variation and get the quality right every time, number one. And number two is this category, no different to any country globally, it's massively price sensitive. So you've got to be able to produce and manufacture a great quality product at a good value. And can you tell me in terms of your your consumers in terms of how does the product how does the product range break down? Do you see that that a younger audience always go for a particular like a you know particular vegetarian offering or and then there's a much greater young male you know propensity towards high protein products or is it um, is it not that specific? Does it is it really just consumers going? I really feel like pasta. That's a really good question, Kim, because when you ask what are we seeing over the last five, six years, and I think the consumer segments that we operate in, that has evolved. Um, and as you rightly touched on, you've got some particular consumers that want a high-protein-based product, low-carb. Um, and it's kind of referred to in terms of um, the gym junkies that want something that's high-protein and that protein smash. And that category in that segment works and operates really well. But the common theme, again, globally is you've got to get the core right. And the core meals and the core growth has always come through, you know, your lasagnas, your spaghetti bolognese, your butter chicken, your mac cheese and so forth. So getting the core right is absolutely paramount. And, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about what was the TV dinners. Never experienced them myself, thankfully. But um, that lost a lot of trust uh, with consumers in the 90s, I believe it was. So, again, getting uh, to a position that we understood the consumer, and that's something we put a lot of uh, research into, is consumer forms of engaging with them directly to understand what works for them, what doesn't work for them, what is it they need. And meeting that need is, is really what we're about. I imagine that that must be incredibly challenging because, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, <laughs> as my children say, before colour television, there were um, a ready meal or a, or a pre-prepared meal or a frozen meal. They, it was all about diet products. 
it was all about a diet meal. There was not there was not much there was there was not much else beyond that. So it must be a, a real challenge to to change consumers understanding of what this category can be. Oh, totally. And look, when I was growing up, no different to you, Kim, um, home cooking, scratch cooking was a common theme all the way through. Um, and in many ways, Ireland is a bit like Australia from that side in terms of um, quite traditional in the consumer's scratch cooking, centre of plate um, and so forth. But the the era we're living in today is consumers, most uh, households are double incomes, husband and wife working. And that brings another new level of pressure and the pressure around time. So the whole convenience factor is what's really happened this category to go and evolve. So you got to meet that consumer need, but you got to need it at a product offering that's um, healthy, it's nutritious, and it's trustworthy. So we've been very passionate about ensuring that all our products, each and every one of them, are preservative-free. Um, all our ingredients are sourced locally in Australia. All our ingredients are sourced fresh. And the way I describe it, it's very much like what you would do at home, but just at a much bigger scale. Right, yeah. So talk to me about COVID. What impact did that have for you? COVID, um, and I suppose if I take a step back and look at COVID, and you'd probably say that there was a small part of course correction happening when, when COVID landed. Consumers responded um, very differently across the two variants as well, between Delta and, and Omicron. But when COVID landed in February, March 2020, um, we seen a spike. We're seeing consumer trends and shopping trends shift, uh, shift from eating out. And, of course, we went through a number of lockdowns that decimated, you know, airlines, that decimated the restaurants and so forth. And that also damaged our business and some sectors of our business. But the retail benefited significantly from it, whereas consumers, again, wanted to get in and try something that was convenient and remove the hassle from home cooking as well. So we're suddenly seeing a shift um, and a spike within this category. The one number I get really passionate about, again, is uh, penetration. How many consumers do repeat purchasing back into it? And over the past few years, we've seen that shift, an extra 5 to 6%, which is awesome. It's still, still very low in Australia when you compare it to some overseas markets. And give you a feel for it, the UK penetration is about 85%, which is massive. Um, and in Australia, when I came in 2015, 14, it was below 10%. And today it's above 22, 23%. So it's, the directory is, is moving uh, at pace. And I think COVID helped people um, are probably brought new consumers to the category. And then that put a responsibility on us, number one, to ensure the product was available, uh, but number two, to ensure we're meeting that consumer need. Yeah, it's that that whole thing, isn't it, where if you do get a consumer to actually try your product, you have to make sure that it they do want to buy it again. <laughs> Correct. That repeat purchase. That eating experience has got to be great. And, you know, you and I are different, whether we go to a restaurant or we buy something in store, and if the eating experience isn't doesn't meet our expectations, we won't buy yeah. it again. Yeah. Can you tell me, like, if I, I mean, if I walked into the to the facility and saw the production, what does it look like? Are there just production lines of of some meals being cooked and prepared, and then the packaging line, or how does that? What does that automation look like? So, Kim, firstly, you're very welcome to come, and I'll give you a tour. 
So secondly, um, I kind of link it back to COVID. I've done a lot of work with New South Wales Health. And I took a lot of those people around their business to help them to understand their business. And these are people that were never within the food industry. And the key messaging that came back was standards of hygiene. And one of the words um, that one of the particular doctors says to me, it is so clinical, it is so clean. And the kind of message back there, it's got to be clinical and clean because what we're doing here is manufacturing people's dinners and home meals at scale. So you would wind through the factories, and again, that's the first impression you would get is clinical. Everybody's obviously in the right PPE gear. It's just a much bigger scale of what you do at home. And when I take people around who haven't been around it, I kind of just refer back to your own kitchen, so different scale, of course. So fresh ingredients in, in the warehouse. The cooking vessels are no different than a pressure cooker that you would use at home, but they're just so much bigger. The assembly lines, um, some of them are robotics and some of them are manual. And again, you can just interact with with how people um, um, operate on the lines. Uh, Kim and something Grant mentioned earlier is is, is passion for flying and planes. Um, something I do a lot of myself. But I talk about our operators. We've we've got chefs um, that prepare the food. The guys that are um, operating the equipment, I call them pilots. And the reason I call them pilots is the monitor variation and performance and respond to variation, sorry, should I say. So they're not tweaking and adjusting kit all the time. They're allowing the robotics work. And the real attraction to me with robotics is it insists on process excellence. You know, it will not tolerate variation um, within the process, and particularly when you've got vision systems monitoring what's happening. So the quality is obviously nailed every time. And it's great to be in a position to be able to offer consumers a, re- a product that the repeat purchase is identical. So the other product lines that you that you do, so there's um, Simone Logue and Patango and then Beacon Sun's Strength Meals Co. So do they all have their own independent sort of production line or is this this is where you understand that I I do not come from an actual food manufacturing background, even though I'm deeply passionate about it. Like, or is there literally like, you know, this is the Simone Logue line and this is the, you know, city kitchen, city kitchen line, or this is the private label line, or does it, is it just so much more sophisticated than that, that everyone listening to this show is now just dropping their head onto the desk in horror at my naivety? Your naivety is probably no different to a lot of people came to be quite honest with you. But uh, probably go back to categories as well. So pastry and the manufacturing of pastry is very different to the manufacturing of meals. Again, I'm probably going to bring it back to what you do at home. So if you're uh, manufacturing, a, making a bolognese at home versus if you're making a pie at home, the process would be very different. And your approach to assembling it would be very different as well. It's no different within our businesses. Um, you know, for pastry manufacturing, you'd have a dedicated pastry facility for pasta. Uh, and a lasagna manufacturing capability, again, a very different uh, part of the factory and facility, and also a very different set of skills. Um, you know, when you look at the skills and the chefs that we've got throughout the business, these are highly trained and very competent individuals. But if one guy or girl is um, in pastry, her or his skills will be very different to the guy or girl in lasagna. Yeah, absolutely. That's fair. Hey, um, uh, when the announcement came out last week about the new build, it was talking about uh, an automated pastry line 
Talk to me about what that automation process means for a company like yours. Well, number one, it's about quality. So again, what I alluded to a few minutes ago is the attraction to me with automation is it removes variation from the process. So, you know, plant, um, and the kind of basic simple language I use, Kim, it's about people, plant, and process. So you've got to get the right people and the right culture and behaviors within the business. You've got to get the right process and then adopt the right technology. Um, and that gives the consumer a product that's outstanding each time they actually pick it up. It's also a great value, and that's where automation plays a, a great role within it. But um, And then you've got the capacity to grow and meet future needs. And the whole capacity piece is making it accessible to consumers. Um, and by having the volume, of course, you can drive the cost down um, through automation as well. And that's the accessibility piece. How big is the company in terms of your staff, in terms of how many employees have you got? Yeah, we've got about 850 employees. Okay, um, yeah. And we've got a turnover that's just over $400 million. So, um, you know, our heritage of the business is goes back 36 years. So founded by David Peake David Beak in 1986. Um, but even David, as a, a founder as well, an entrepreneur, was always a foodie and always very passionate about you know, doing the global trot and seeing what happens uh, across overseas. And I think he was first to market in Slowcook and CV. And last year we made um, a significant investment about growing and automating that capability. We spent some 20 million on a, a new capability to, again, meet that consumer need, remove variation and add value to the uh, end product. And it's highly automated again, but you know, I talk about automation quite a bit, but it's really around process excellence. Um, I love it because not everybody can do it and you get the right pilots running it and the product that you actually manufacture is just awesome every time. And I, I mean, this is, as you've just said, this is something that you are really passionate about and talk about a lot. I can't imagine being able to run a company on this scale if you didn't have that commitment and passion for that that process excellence and, and that ensuring you have that consistency of standard. Talk to me about the actual culture of the company as well, because obviously, yes, you can have the automated sort of components and the robotics, but you do still have 800 staff who are working there and, and you know, identify themselves as an, as an employee of the company. And so what's, tell me, like, what, what's the culture of the, of the company? Yeah, it's interesting, Kim. We just finished our engagement survey. And when I look at our achievements over the last seven years, it's probably the thing I'm, I'm most proud of. You know, our engagement survey came above 85%. And that was through COVID as well. I describe our business as a business that has got awesome people. You know, you look at the, the pressures around the total industry to attract and retain good people. Our stability in the business is over 80%, which is, is a massive statement. The heart of our business and our, our factories, that's where our heroes and our frontline heroes are every day. And these people that rock up in the morning at 5 a.m., the environment they operate in is, is cold um, and it can be hard work. But these are the heroes within the business. That, and the culture that we've continued to develop and evolve is one united team. And, you know, you just go back and look at our, our values, you know create a better future, collaborate for success, people matter, act with integrity. And they're not just words. They're something that people can actually touch and feel. So, um, you know, the, the people within our business, I feel very proud of who we have and how we have, how we retain them. 
but also very grateful. We've got awesome people. And that's one of our unique PODs beyond automation, beyond anything else. Uh, they're fabulous. Tell me about um, it, looking at your new product development. What's what's the process that you go through when you're looking to develop new ranges or, uh, you know, decide if, if a recipe needs tweaking or, um, you know, something's, something's on the chopping block and it might not, you know. Might well, not I think it's two ways. There's, there's two things, Kim. The first one, which I alluded to previously, is we invest a lot into consumer research. So we've got to understand the consumers and understand the consumer need. It's pointless as trying to push products into the market. But when you understand the consumer need, you translate, translate that back to product. We have built, um, and we're in the progress of building a brand new innovation center at our Green Acre facility. We have one that's pretty state-of-the-art at our Arundel Park facility, and we recruit executive chefs. Uh, we've got a, a range of 12 executive chefs, and they come from a range of different backgrounds. Um, all food technologists by trade, but some of them have worked in top-tier um, restaurants. Uh, some of them have worked in um, uh, QSR. Some of them have worked in food service, and some of them have worked in retail. So you bring a wealth of experience. We've also got that experience from South Africa, US, UK, and, of course, Australia. So this enables them to actually develop the product. Um, and then you're taking those products back to consumers and getting feedback. So it's really important that our innovation strategy is consumer-led um, rather than I think you think. And there were some of the mistakes we probably made in 2015. We looked at just the overseas market and developed products, but the consumer wasn't prepared to pay for it uh, at that kind of price. Or they weren't, it wasn't meeting their need. It was too niche. You go to a restaurant. And so then what are you saying? What are consumers wanting? What are consumers wanting to eat? <laughs> Number one, okay, they want the core to be good. They want the eating experience and the core to be exceptional every time and they want to buy it at a good value. So that's where automation kind of plays a key role. Getting the core right is paramount um, in this particular category. That's point number one. Number two, number two they want a degree in newness. Um, and you've constantly got to bring a degree of newness to the category and excite the consumer. Now, the long-term success of that, a lot of that newness will never become the core. But you've got to be prepared to invest into the product and also recognize that it may not be successful long term. I'll give you a feel for it, Kim. Every new product you develop costs about $25,000. So it's not cheap to do it. But um, bringing new consumers of the category is where you get the return on that. And it's, it's something we constantly commit to doing. Wow. And so... Are you seeing that in the in that sort of consumer interest? Because one of the one of the things that uh, seemed to come out of COVID that a lot of people were talking about was that consumers were looking for meals. Um, they were curious and they were willing to try new or different cuisines or dishes that they would otherwise not have um, not have looked at or considered. Is that something you you experienced as well? 100%, um, absolutely. And that's where I mentioned earlier about penetration increasing, uh, where consumers are buying into it. And the channels that consumers are buying into it as well have um, increased. So it's, it's not just um, major retailers. It's a um, combination of major retailers, independence, direct-to-home, uh, prescription kind of offer as well. So it's um, as we've seen every channel increase and particularly around independence as well, um, that's been a massive opportunity for those retailers. 
So uh, this build is obviously going to be getting underway. When do you think, um, when's it due to be operational? By the um, the start of uh, Q4 calendar year, so um, as we lead into September, um, we aim to be operational. So, um, you know, COVID has, has a role to play within this, mm. um, ensuring that our development <laughs> people, our construction guys can actually get to work. Yeah. Um, which, thankfully, they're, they're there and they're, they're digging away as we speak today, which is great. I think the other challenge we've got, Kim, is... Globally, there's a shortage of um, PLCs and components for building kit. So that's one of the, the topics of discussion that I'm in over here and overseas today is how can we ensure we can source the Siemens hardware particularly um, and not encounter delays in it. But I'm aiming to have this up and running by late September, early October. Wow. Uh, and then how how much will it um, increase your scale? Like once it's operational, will your production output increase by 20%, half, 50% or how yeah, does that? Yeah, between 30 and 40%. And Kim, I think this, for me, this is really a three to five year horizon. It's, it's making sure we've got the capability to meet this category that's continuing to emerge and meet consumer needs. So it's certainly not a short-term play. Um, the facility is, is, is quite a quite a large facility at 12,000 square metres. Um, and it's ensuring you've got that footprint to continue to grow. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, it's so, it's fascinating and it's really exciting. And um, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for uh, rising, um, you know, getting up bright and early, although I do know that you were up and exercising because... Apparently, you're one of those people. Uh, <laughs> I think I am one of those people, Kim. Oh, that's really bad because I was actually up this morning to go for a walk at 5.30, except it was raining, so I did go back to bed. Um, so, yes, that was that was a terrible slander and I do apologise. <laughs> it's all good. All good. <laughs> um, but, look, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, I just find this this sector within, you know, food and food and beverage manufacturing just so fascinating um, and uh, it's great to have a glimpse inside one of Australia's largest uh, players in the space. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's great to speak. Well, thanks, Ray. That's been fascinating. And thanks, Kim. And of course, thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can like us on iTunes and uh, this helps others discover our episodes. We'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative one. But until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of food and drink business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.